Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial experts John and Michael Parise from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Hey, Eric. How's everything going? Hey, good morning, Eric. I'm good. This is this is great. It's a wonderful day. And it's a wonderful, yes, it it's a wonderful day to talk about key components of a successful buy and sell agreement. Wouldn't you oh, agree yeah. with that? Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> we'll try to make it exciting. <laughs> I, no, I think it is. I mean, it's got to be super exciting oh, for the important. for the people yeah. that are buying and selling, right? That's the yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or if you, if you are in a partnership type business, these documents are vital. If you don't have one, you should. And mm -hmm. hopefully, by the end of of today's podcast, uh, if you don't have one, we'll convince you to have one. All right, you you know, John has said it before. Michael, you're the brains of this operation. Of course, <laughs> yes, he is. Where are we starting? <laughs> well, I always think it's important before we get into a lot of the detail on on uh, how these documents can be drafted. It, it's really important to understand, I guess, first what's what they are, why they're important. And so usually I think that's the best place to start. So right. if you're looking at, again, as I said, if you are in a partnership uh, business, a privately held partnership, very different world than in the in the public um, world, the public company world. You have in the public world the ability to transfer your your shares in your in that company really however you want. You can you can buy shares of Amazon, sell shares of Amazon the next day. They're very uh, readily available market for those shares. But if you're in a private company, it's a little bit different. And so when you're talking about closely held uh, company stock or or LLC interests, partners in that are typically involved in that business are pretty vital. Um, and so these documents are designed very much to, to, to figure out how ownership is transferred between uh, partners or between the business and a partner. Uh, and essentially is really designed to restrict transferring your shares to a third party. That's the general structure of these types of agreements. All right. And, and so really it's, it's, again, these types of documents are very, very important if you are a closely held company, because if you do desire to sell your shares in a company, how is how does that how is that typical situation handled? Or if someone a partner passes away, how is that how is that circumstance handled? And so what we're going to hopefully talk about today is really a primer on these types of agreements, how they can be structured. Uh, we've seen every derivation of these types of agreements through the years. Uh, very often when we review them, we tend to find that I think that you would agree they tend to be incomplete from a variety of contexts in terms of how they are structured and, and maybe not taking advantage of all the tools or the types of language that it could incorporate. Yeah, missing parts. Um, when we review these documents, we find that a lot of the what-if scenarios I refer to them as are not covered deeply in these agreements. And those are the ones that have a tendency to cause problems when people aren't getting along. And, and, and when you think about these agreements, it really protects both parties. It's mm -hmm. not, it doesn't favor any one party. So both spouses are treated the same way, both partners are, are treated the same way, or other, 
through these documents. It's just the missing pieces that we see are the glaring issue. And uh, today we'll be discussing some of those issues. So yeah. one of the things you said, Michael, kind of triggered a question to me, and I guess this would be one of the what ifs, and maybe you'll cover this a little bit later, but I'd like to know now. <laughs> I'm just kidding, not to be selfish, but when, when you <laughs> said- us off track here. Yeah, please go ahead. Actually, Watch I have it. a story yeah. that I could, I could throw in here and might help clear some pieces. I, I worked with two brothers down in my local area here, well, it's, I'm, I'm going back 20 years ago. And they worked very, very well together. Um, one ran the business, he was the operations piece of it. And the other brother was the marketing uh, person who went out and created opportunities for the business, uh, went out, played golf with prospective clients, you know, so on and so forth. Through the years, the marketing brother became an alcoholic, unfortunately. Mm. And he had three DWIs, and that was in the days when you just got fined, not lose your life, in a way. Um, so they, he, the third time he had a DWI, uh, he 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 killed a little girl on a bike. She was oh, 13 geez. years old, and the local community newspaper had it all over the place, and it actually affected the business greatly. And he ended up going to jail, and the the spouse uh, of this particular gentleman went up to the brother and said, I need a check. And the brother said, I don't have a check. I had to hire someone to replace your husband, unfortunately. So there's no extra money in our company to pay you. And she goes, yeah, but I'm the 50% owner. He said, well, I don't have any money. So they went to court and the judge looked at the partner, the remaining partner and said, do you have a shareholder agreement? And he said, no. He said, write her a check. So these agreements have a tendency to really mess things up if you don't do them correctly, or if you don't have one at all, which we find, by the way, a commonplace, mm -hmm. that they could affect families forever. So these, although we joked initially that these, this is a fun topic, it's a very serious one because this is the um, the the document that controls exits of a company, a privately held company, to either partners or to another party. So with that, I'm going to just turn it back to Michael to go through some of the details of that. Well, I'll turn it right back to you, Eric, because you had a question before. Yeah, it, you John, actually, John, you actually touched on it because it, it's very interesting to me. Michael, you had said that this protects people from somebody selling the stock in the company to a third party. Right. right? That's part of it. So what happens if, just like John said, if somebody wants to sell their share, their portion, but the other party or other parties, depending on how many there are, they don't have the money to do that. To 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 you're in that to you're buy saying to buy the um, departing shareholders' interest. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's we will touch on that a little bit, and that is one of as my father termed it these what if scenarios, mm -hmm. and we call them triggering events that again can trigger this type of agreement where a buyout would be necessary. So that's one of those types of of situations where let's say one partner for whatever reason says, I, you buy me out. I'm, I'm done. I don't want to be a part of the company anymore for whatever reason. How is that situation handled? And so one of the things that we can touch on in more detail a little bit later is from a valuation standpoint of the company, to, to your point, Eric, while that's probably easier said than done, that partner or the company may not have the, the capital to buy that partner out. Mm -hmm. So very often what happens is there's a discount on the value of the company because that part that departing partner put the company in such a rough position. Yeah. Right? Like, like John said, the judge says, write him a check, but yeah. if that check bounces sky, it doesn't do anybody good. So that, that must be one heck of a process to try to figure out what that check has to be at that point. 
Yeah. And, and, and this is a very critical piece you know, Michael just brought up because if, if a partner is squeezing the business because he doesn't want to be there anymore or there's a felony or there's a divorce or there's some kind of a, a fact pattern that causes that partner to walk into the other partner and say, listen, next week I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. That causes that stress to the company. So should that value be equal because you're causing stress because you can affect the company because you're leaving? And you might have a very important role that could affect the growth of the company over the short term. So these d- agreements are designed to say if you force that issue, we'll, we'll, we'll sell the shares, but it'll be discounted value because you're forcing the event. So these, these documents, again, become a guiding point to these issues. And, and one of the things that when we review these documents, one, one very common, and it should be included in every one of these buy-sell agreements, is what happens if one partner passes away. Uh, typically, mm-hmm. the issue there is the remaining partner or partners really don't want the shares of the deceased partner really to pass on to the family because they don't have a relationship with the family. Most business owners say, I really do not want uh, to run the business with the spouse of a, a deceased partner. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the spouse may not really have the capabilities or really want to run the business. So these these agreements really handle that eventuality, and very often that's funded via a life insurance contract on each of the partners that will provide a source of liquidity to buy out the estate or buy out the spouse of that deceased uh, shareholder. But that's a very common provision, but probably one of the most common ways that these agreements are triggered is that event that we were just talking about, which is one, you know, the disagreement happens in the business, one partner is not getting along for one reason or another, and they want out. And mm-hmm. life insurance, in, in the traditional sense, really does not handle that type of, of eventuality. And so, again, that's where that discounting of value on, on the shareholder agreement or on the value of the company uh, could, could be appropriate in, in that situation. Yeah, the other piece is when I ask the client a question about a shareholder agreement, and let's assume he has one, I'll ask him, is it designed to benefit the person who dies first or second? And I get these stares. Hmm. The partner, right? The partner's. And they go, oh, that's a great question. Well, depending on how they're designed, could have huge impact on that value shift to the exiting partner less than what the company is really worth. So, so analysis has to be done and financials has to be looked at very closely as you design these documents to make sure whoever's leaving the event has a fair share of the value, the true value of the company. Uh, so, so we see a lot of, again, those gaping holes in these agreements uh, and and it's critical that that anyone has these agreements. A review them uh, every couple of years with your attorneys. Uh, make sure your valuations looked at on an ongoing basis. Make sure any changes in the in the business those that shareholder agreement adopts those changes. And most often happens, as Michael will tell you, you know, years go by and no one ever looks at their agreements. All of a sudden, someone passes away and they go, "Oops, we didn't address that." And now lawyers get involved and battle fronts are drawn. So we want to prevent lawsuits. That's what this is all about. We mm-hmm. protect both partners from having their families get involved with any potential legal action because this wasn't thought through. So, so again, we kid around about it, but these are very serious documents and the most serious documents to two partners couldn't place for their business. Yeah, and I think that, that well, that was, a, that was a great point. You can imagine, Eric, that if, if a conflict does arise or if a partner passes away and this type of agreement's not in place, or maybe it hasn't been updated in a while, and there are holes in it, that's certainly going to create some conflict, especially on the valuation side. There's been quite a few times I've reviewed these types of agreements, and they said uh, that the language in the agreement essentially said that if one partner uh, passes away, 
that the value of the company to the surviving spouse is the book value of the company, which depending on the company makeup yeah. may not really be the true value of the company, mm -hmm. the true market value of the company. So you can imagine these scenarios where uh, the, the spouse of the deceased partner, uh, the attorney looks at that and says, well, wait a minute, that's not really the true value of the company. The true value of the company is, you know, three times that number or whatever, whatever the, you know, the, the actual value uh, market value is. And now you have this contest and this lawsuit that's, that's being created because the business says, well, that's what the agreement calls for. It's the book value. And the spouse says, nope, I don't agree. And so it, again, these, these types of agreements are designed to lay this all out on the table ahead of time while everyone is in good spirits. Everyone's ready to build the business and positive uh, and lay it all out and make sure that these get designed very thoroughly so that a, a conflict doesn't happen down the road. Yeah, and that's a great point, Michael. And when partners first come together in, in opening a business, this is when, again, the enthusiasm there, everybody's on the same page, everyone loves each other, and these agreements become very um, easy to develop because, again, it benefits both parties. The challenge is 10 years down the road, if the partners are now not getting along that well, and all of a sudden someone says, we need to make a change in our shareholder agreement. And one partner thinks it favors them and it doesn't favor the other one, and they don't get done, and all of a sudden now you got a battlefront. So, so again, it's a challenge to stay on top of these documents, which is why uh, at Copper Beach, we review these documents with our families pretty much annually to make sure there are no changes, there's, there's no important elements that happened in the business and keep both partners on the same page as, as, as the world turns. So the, I think, uh, and what, what we wanted to touch on as well, were sort of some of the triggering events. We actually really covered quite a few of them just in, in passing conversation, but uh, we talked about the, uh, the death of a partner or one partner essentially saying, I want, I want out you know, those types of situations. Really, we like to, to boil down these triggering events into sort of voluntary triggering events and involuntary triggering mm -hmm. events. So if you think about the passing away or the passing of a, of a partner, that's really an involuntary triggering event. Something like a partner being disabled and being unable to uh, contribute to the business anymore. That's another involuntary uh, type of triggering event. Um, the felony story that you said, Dad, that's obviously, I don't think anybody's voluntarily committing a felony, mm -hmm. although maybe, maybe that does happen. But we classify them as involuntary triggering events. Uh, so those sorts, of, th those sorts of triggering events are typically included in these agreements. Um, we very often don't see things like felonies uh, being touched on in agreements. Again, mm -hmm. that's one of the things that we, that we think should be included in there. You obviously hope that that never happens. But in that story uh, that you told, Dad, that, that became a really, really important <laughs> important issue Definitely. that really affected the family and the business. So um, all of these triggering events should be handled in one way or the other. Um, and that's really part of the design process as well. Another thing is, uh, actually you touched on that, that is divorce. Mm -hmm. If, uh, one partner becomes divorced, um, and the shares of the business are subject to that marital separation. Again, that's probably very specific to the state that you're in, but that could be a triggering event. Cause again, now you have the situation where let's say it's split 50, 50, and now you have the one partner is in business with their divorced spouse. And now the other partner is in business with the both of them. And that can certainly get hairy. So oftentimes that becomes a triggering event as well. Uh, Dad, what are some other ones that, that you could think of? Uh, yeah, the third party transaction. And initially when Michael brought that up, it prevents you from selling your shares to someone that really shouldn't right. shouldn't be part of the business. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to sell my shares to my nephew, 
And if there's no controls under agreement for me to do that, now my partner's now in partnership with my nephew and they might not like each other or he might not be qualified to help run the business. So it restricts that transfer. So there's usually the partner has the first rights of refusal to buy the other partner out on their shares right. uh, or have an agreement put in place after the fact to say who these shares can be sold to. Yep. Yeah. So you can say, uh, okay, you can sell to a third party, but I, as the other partner, I have the, the first right of, to, to buy those shares at the same terms that you're selling to that third party. Um, that's a very common provision as well. That still brings up your issue or your question, Eric, that you had earlier is sort of, okay, well, where does that money come from to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. And that's really where those discounts can come into play, the discount of the value. So maybe if that eventuality happens, it's disc the, the value is discounted 30, 40%. Sometimes we've seen in agreements to take that into account where you're putting the business or the partner in a tough spot. Um, we also see there could be some payout periods of time where maybe you're paying a, a chunk of that up front and mm -hmm. there's a no payment uh, down the road for a period of years. So there are ways that you could structure that. There's a lot of flexibility in these in these documents. There's there really isn't much that I, we haven't seen or that you couldn't be creative with to fit the needs of the business. But those are the, some of the uh, the ways you can handle the, that type of venture. All right. I've got two questions. I've got two questions for you. On, on the things that you just said. So first, okay. let's talk about the third party thing. And then I want to talk about divorce. You never want to mm -hmm. hear that, right? But I'm not your spouse. So that's okay. Um, <laughs> so the third party, if one of the owners wants to sell to a third party, and the third party is willing to buy it for a certain amount, how is the coupon or discount, I think is what you call it? Did, how is that factored in if the third party is willing to pay a certain amount? Wouldn't the other owner have to match that in the in the right of refusal or the right of to, to purchase at the same terms as the third party is offered because it I would, could be yeah i yeah, mean it could be and again it depends on on the design so it could be uh that value at, at whatever the third party buys it for or wants to buy it for so there'd be or no you discount. could you could have a discount from that value as well oh you could okay okay so that, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. got it all right if it's and, a family member as an example you could be kind Gotcha. And sell for lesser amount. Yeah, that, and that's a great point. That a lot. Of, one other common provision that we see is even though the general restriction is to not be able to sell or transfer to a third party, very often there is an exception in there for a spouse or a child, mm -hmm. and that's really more from an estate planning standpoint. If you can imagine, you may want to have a, a the the ability to transfer your shares of a company to a trust for your spouse or your children just from an estate tax reduction standpoint yep. or an asset protection standpoint. So there are typically some exceptions that are built into these agreements, but we've seen agreements that didn't even allow that. So it, it is, you know, I think that's personally a little too restrictive, but mm -hmm. again, it's, it's really whatever the parties agree to and the partners agree to is, is, you know, what can be allowed. Yeah. This is not real common, but we've come across families uh, uh, that have multiple owners, more than two, in these agreements hmm. and one particular company we work with has female ownership only as part of the company because they get ability to uh, deal with companies across the country to get contracts because hmm. they're a female owned business or a minority owned business. So these agreements now have, well, now you can only sell it to a female. <laughs> you can only sell it to one who qualifies for those abilities to do bids in these particular um, contract you know, negotiations. Yeah. Like McDonald's, for example, they have to give 15% of their business to minority-owned 
business owners. It's just part of the way our culture has been developed. So sometimes these agreements have to be fine-tuned. We don't see that that often, but that's one thing. If someone has that type of a business structure, they got to be real careful how these documents are drafted. Got it. Yeah, that, that's a that's a yeah that was a very uh, unique case that we worked on with with that particular family just to maintain that certification because mm-hmm. um, they were doing some estate planning and transferring their company to a trust. But again, in order to maintain that that uh, uh, female-owned business certification, they had to the trusts had to be designed a very specific way, and the trustees of that trust had to be, uh, you know, a female as well. So it was it was quite the it was quite the design process um, uh, on that agreement. But Dad, why don't you touch on uh, the different types of of agreements a little bit in terms of how these agreements can be structured from a from a purchasing of standpoint of the shares themselves. Yeah, there's, there's, there's always a question we ask, uh, again, to that closely held business, how efficient or tax efficient is their shareholder agreement? And they cross their eyes and go, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Well, these agreements are designed where they could be something referred to as a stock redemption or a cross purchase agreement or a wait and see agreement. And I'll let Michael get into the details how they work. But but we often find that people cement themselves into one type of a structure in their agreement. And 30 years later, when the buy-sell agreement is activated, the laws might have changed. So we lean towards the wait-and-see type of a document where we'll take advantage of whatever laws exist to maximize the tax efficiencies of these documents. So, Michael, why don't you review the stock redemption and the cross-purchase oh. and how they, how they technically sure. work? Sure. Uh, it has to really do with who or what party is actually buying the shares. So if a if a partner wants to depart the company, or uh, let's let's use death scenario, if a partner passes away, what party is actually the party that is purchasing those shares? It can be designed, as my dad said, in two ways. So one is a cross-purchase agreement, which is that the remaining or the surviving partners are actually the purchasers of that interest in the business, okay? The entity redemption strategy is that the company itself purchases the shares from the the deceased shareholders estate. So depending on the makeup of the business and depending on the tax situation, one may be more favorable than the other. Where my father was talking about with a wait and see type of document is really you actually can include both sets of language in a document itself and will allow for the company or the partners to take advantage of that or which type of regime is best at that time when the agreement is is eventually triggered because there is some tax uh, benefits for doing one for doing it one way or the other typically it has to do with with uh, the income tax exposures to the surviving shareholders so in our tax code there's something called the step up of uh, income tax basis which you may we may have mentioned uh, a couple times on some earlier podcasts and what that means is, is if you pass away and you own an asset in your a personal name, your basis, your tax basis of that entity or that asset will step up to the value of the asset at the date of death. So if you imagine a business, let's say they start with a very small amount of capital and they grow the company into a successful enterprise, they have a very low tax basis in that because they, they've only put a small amount of capital and they grew it. If they were to sell that asset, they would have to pay capital gain tax on on that gain, the difference between uh, the, what they sold it for in their tax basis. So this this step up in basis can come into play where the, the basis, again, will step up to the date of death value and the surviving partners or the surviving, uh, whoever's inheriting those the, that company value can sell that without paying capital gain tax. So now if you think about a surviving partner, it works the same way. 
if they are buying the uh, the entity or excuse me the shares from the deceased shareholder, they are actually having a higher basis on those shares that they're buying. Mm. Right? Does that make sense? Yep. They're buying it back at at that date of death value. If they turned around and sold the company to a third party, they would own some of their shares at that very low basis, and they would own some of their shares at the basis that they bought the company at. Okay, so that, from a tax standpoint, is very beneficial in a cross-purchase type of agreement. In an entity redemption agreement where the company is buying those shares, what ends up happening is if it's a 50-50 partnership and one partner passes away, now the surviving partner owns 100% of the company with that very low basis as opposed to owning 50% at a low basis and 50% at a high basis. Mm. Huge difference. A L- little technical, but if you look at it, that's, that's sort of the, the question is how tax efficient is your shareholder agreement because that type of uh, that situation comes up where it is important in, a, in, in a, a smaller business like that where from a tax standpoint, I say that can save you know, millions of dollars um, yep. to, to a surviving shareholder if, uh, if the company was eventually sold. So those types of things we, we very often find are not really considered in the design of these agreements, where again, a, a wait and see type of approach can be more beneficial because it gives you the, the, or the company the ability to, to be nimble and to change things as they need to. Remember, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. I think we've talked about that mm-hmm. before. And this strategy is no different in, in, our, in the rest of the world we live in. So we try to maximize the efficiencies of these documents purely from a tax strategy as well as a partnership strategy to the, to the owners of the business. Uh, Dad, we, we touched a little bit on, on the valuation of the company um, and we talked, talked a little bit about discounts. Um, are there any specific ways in which you could value a business that makes sense in, in terms of, you know, we talked about that story of using book value as maybe not being the best way to, to have market value. Uh, what other ways do companies typically value the company for purposes of these agreements? Yeah, that, that's a, uh, always an ongoing question by, by our clients. How, how do I value my company? Well, the first step you could take a look at is go out to a third party and get the company valued uh, as if you're going to sell the company today. Um, without discounts, without any type of uh, manipulation. He's just going to sell it to a third party. And that's really a starting point. That's not a book value. That's a current market value for the business. Now, what I said earlier, the future of that business could change dramatically to the remaining partner. I'll give you an example. If we valued, uh, Eric, you and I, our our company worth $5 million, and we're both 50% owners, so that's $2.5 million Mm -hmm. apiece. And we were in the middle of negotiating a contract with Michael because he's got this great company. He wants to order a lot of stuff from us. And in between that, I pass away. But the contract or, or, the, or that opportunity still exists in that company, which can quadruple the revenues of the company, mm. which enhances that value. The question is, should you take that in consideration in your valuation? And the answer is. It depends. Most, <laughs> nice. most cases. Hey, I'm the lawyer here. That's, that's, that's our language. That's most cases that should be discussed as part of an opportunity over a, like a 12-month period of time that this event can happen. So that's very touchy. So you really have to be careful. These events that are happening in the company have to be talked about when something like this suddenly happens, which is why it's I'm adamant about it. You have to look at this stuff every single year with your advisors to try to figure out what's going on with the company, where it's moving and shaking, what the opportunities are, and peg that value each and every year to increase 
that fairness to each partner as things move forward. Mm -hmm. I see this staleness happens in these agreements, as I said earlier, they don't pay attention to them. I, I can't tell you how many business owners I ask, when was the last time you looked at your shareholder agreement? They look at me and they smile and go, 20 years ago. Mm. And that's common because they did yeah. put it together 20 years ago and the business is now totally different than they started with. And no one brought it to their attention because remember we talked in our previous uh, uh, podcast is most advisors live in these silos. Mm -hmm. Attorneys over here, CPAs over there, and everybody else is over there. Copper Beach fame from our standpoint is we collaborate with this team and we become that CFO and watch over these events. And if you don't have someone watching over these events, and it could be your lawyer, your CPA, or even a Copper Beach, you have to have someone looking over what's going on with the family and the businesses because that has huge impact negatively and positively. If, if, if you do things right or wrong. Yeah. So that, that's that, that's that push and pull on that valuation. But that's, that's the key piece that I see is how do you really value the worth of the company? Cause you most certainly want to be fair to the partners. Yeah. And there's uh, no real, it's difficult to come up with, with one way that, that fits for every type of company mm -hmm. because that, that example you gave that is a really, is a good one because that's a, a situation where maybe, uh, the company, decides to get a formal valuation in the event that this agreement is triggered for whatever reason that the company will actually go out to a third party appraiser and get a formal valuation of what the company's worth. Well, that there's pluses to that. It's probably the most accurate determination of what a of what a company or what the company is worth. The downside of that is you have to go out and hire someone to do that, mm -hmm. which can be costly. So that's the downside of of that. But again, that may be, may fit that business and would help in that eventuality because what ends up happening uh, very often, and it's not a bad a, a bad way to structure an agreement from a valuation standpoint, is we very often see formula clauses, which is uh, sort of uh, you know trailing twelve month revenue multiplied by uh, you know five times or whatever you know an mm -hmm. EBITDA type of calculation. Well, that might work again uh, in the past, but it may not take into account you know future growth. Uh, of the company, um, you know, th that's why some people also use a discounted cash flow projection uh, when when coming up with the value. So again, th how the company is valued is really, really, really important. And if you're not looking at these agreements on a somewhat regular basis, sometimes those 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 holes can develop. And so we bring these up with our families again. We try to annually just to make sure that everything is still the same. Um, and very often, both parties or, or both partners or all the partners are comfortable with, with the way the agreement is, but at least you're revisiting it on a regular basis to make sure that you're protecting everyone. Guys, I, this brought up a ton of questions for me, um, a ton of questions for our listeners, I'm sure, but what we don't have is time. So I'm going to ask <laughs> you to give people uh, contact information for them to, to reach out because I, I guarantee people have questions after this. There's a ton of information that they need to unpack and uh, they need to reach out to you. How do they do that? Well, you can you can uh, call us on the telephone, which our, our area code is 856-988-8300. Uh, that is our office number. You can ask for uh, myself or my father, John, uh, or Lauren in our office, who we've mentioned a few times. She's mm -hmm. our, our family office concierge. She knows where to get us if, if we're not available. Uh, or you could also reach us uh, via our website at www.c bfgllc.com that is c as in cat b as in boy f as in frank g as in girl llc.com perfect yeah i would encourage anybody to listen is is to get to our website download our white papers mm. 
listen to some of our podcasts if you're not subscribed to our podcast, because there's a lot of intricate data in these podcasts that could, could affect you one way or the other, and you need to you need to to to, to learn about options you have in in the world of finance. Definitely, definitely. Thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. And thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to it, you need to. Please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This will make it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends, family, or your business partner who you need to review your documents with. They need to hear this too. Thanks again for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.